Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. right here on this fine station. Our podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and a bunch of others that folks are linking us to. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It also saves me having to find those that I couldn't find before. Uh, it's like you put in Google Podcasts uh, in the search engine and it gives you all this other stuff. And it's like, no, I, I think that uh, maybe my listeners will will help me out. And they have. And I've, I'm so thankful for that because uh, I can't be, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in a, I'm on a one-man band, as it were, here on, uh, on Tell Me Your Story <laughs> from beginning to end, which isn't bad. I enjoy it. I enjoy all the aspects of it. I'm not sure I'll be able to handle uh, the the uh, reduced workload one day if and when, and I'm hoping when, uh, maybe I get a producer or um, uh, an assistant who uh, books the call, uh, the guests and all that kind of stuff. But for right now and for the past 40 years, it's been me and it's been a lot of fun. And we're going to have some fun here on the program. And if you enjoy the fun we're having here in 2020, the year of perfect vision, and I talk about that all the time. I hand out my business cards that have the logo on the back or the front, depending upon which way you're holding the card. It's also on the website where you can click on that link to go to the podcasts there on the radio shows page. Uh, it's about inner vision. It's about going within to finding out who you are and what you're all about. We're going to be finding out all about Beth uh, Kramer, who is uh, the author of a memoir about dying to live entitled, Why Didn't I Notice Her Before? I like that. A title that's a question. And Beth, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you are also a, a filmmaker. I just happened to get over to your uh, website where you've got uh, some commercials listed and different things of that nature. How long have you been doing that? Um, oh, my goodness. 20 years, probably. That's not yeah, bad. So I you've, started you, college. Yeah. yeah, you've kind of uh, gone through a little bit of the technological change, in even in your industry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I started, we were editing on film, and then the digital revolution happened. <laughs> And now everything's nonlinear and everything's on computers. I can work from home, which is lovely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely changed. And I know, too, that that uh, there are those purists. I'm not sure if you're one of them. Maybe you are. Uh, I am sort of kind of. I mean, I've embraced and accepted the digital age. I'm sitting here watching our waveform create across the screen here. And um, yet at the same time, I miss those days. Uh, when um, and this is the truth, I knelt before the audio gods because we had a reel to reel that when you had to do some editing, you had to kneel in front of it. And it had the uh, editing block right in front. And yep. <laughs> you reached your hands forward and the China marker and razor blade. Uh, yeah. So I spent a lot of time on my knees back in the 80s and early 90s. <laughs> um, do you, do, and, and your audience, have they done the same or do we have like... Oh, we have old and new. Generation. We have all the generations listening to this program, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I'm, I, I, I mean, that's also what I do is archival work. And if you've got an old reel-to-reel, uh, an old 78 or 45 or even a 33, I've got the turntable. Uh, it's interesting. I have one that is uh, analog and the other one that is analog digital. Uh, yeah. I can choose between the two. And, um, and then I've, I'm transferring this incredible number of cassettes. 
I had yeah. to go out. I may and and fortunately these cassette players are very inexpensive, but they still provide good quality. Uh, to where I can transfer from cassette to digital, and then I put them up on SoundCloud, and I'll be making those available of my dear friend who passed away last March of 2019. Um, and she probably willed to me about 500 cassettes of interviews that she did oh, since the either late tw- 1970s or early 1980s. Well, once it goes all on the cloud, though, and then something happens, there's a, a glitch, I mean, everything's lost. We need to keep these archival Things. We, we do. Know, it's so important, and and I think people have really, even the, the you know the newer generations generation is enjoying analog. They're understanding, you know, albums had a resurgence. Um, you know, I think some of the analog stuff is still important. People still appreciate it. Uh, you know, I had a buddy who refused to buy and use CDs uh, because he said that it doesn't have the same ambiance, if you will. Uh, as uh, uh, as the uh, digital CD had didn't have that beautiful not the scratches on the album but just right. that fidelity and then I remember doing some interviews about music and and that aspect of it where there was a study that was done about music of today and yesterday so to speak and that the biggest difference is that there isn't the fullness of sound. And this isn't uh, about digital anymore. Now this is about the writing and the composition and the arrangements that you don't have that fullness of sound that you had of the music, even going back to the uh, mid, uh, early and mid 80s and and Mm -hmm. before. And I'm talking about people you might consider pop artists who had full orchestras behind some of their songs. Sure. No, songs can be written and created very quickly because we're using electronic music and, um, you know, there's not a whole band behind you. And yeah. I think that, that's definitely, you know, part of collaboration, part of the artistry about going into studio and, and hearing actual uh, acoustic and electronic electric music, you know, uh, electric guitars and so forth and bass as well. But, yeah, I mean, it's just a well, whole new world. Yeah, and it is a whole new world for all of us. Uh, I have been asking this question of many people. What is our next level? What is our next step? Uh, what what will we become uh, in the next evolutionary process of man? What what's going to be the next discovery? And one of the reasons why, as you heard me mention at the front end of the program, that we are promoting 2020, the year of perfect vision, is that I honestly believe that all of the answers we need are within each one of us. That we don't need to go outside of ourselves in spite of the fact that, of course, hey, we're all connected. I mean, it's that's pretty obvious, uh, especially with some of the uh, extraordinary synchronistic experiences that we could have. Some though, as simple as I think I'm going to call Beth Kramer. My phone rings and guess who's on the other end? Beth Kramer. Wow. Yeah. OK. We there. So there's got to be something going on there behind the scenes. And uh, I know that that uh, with your experiences, not only in in the media in which you uh, uh, work, but also your experiences, especially writing your memoir. Now, I'm going to ask the question I should not ask, but I am an interviewer and I have that right. I think I get I get uh, um, uh, a pass on this. Uh, If I may ask, uh, you say you've been working in this industry for 20 years. How old are you today? I am 50 years old. Good. I'm 60 come June. Uh, so uh, we're so you've been doing this since you were 30. Uh, well, you're not, well, well, God. So, you know, my math is a little off. Okay. Right? Well, I, give or take. 
give or take. <laughs> Actually, when I, you know, when I was in college, I, I uh, realized that I wanted I wanted to be a director, but I decided to go through the route of editing. Um, that was going to be my road, my path, and it it stuck and just like sort of had the instincts for it. So yeah, I'd say I've been doing it for maybe. Then I lie, I've been doing it for about yeah. twenty five years. Well, you you know, it's interesting. I can I can give you a pass about my, writing your memoirs at the age of fifty. Uh, I find it interesting. I haven't even started mine, uh, mm. although there would be those who might say that, well, gee, you know, if I'd been listening to his interviews going back to the early 80s up until now, I probably know everything about Richard that there is to know because I tend to mouth well, off about my, my life. But I'm thinking, if you haven't lived at least 50 years, what business have you got? I've, I mean, there are people who are writing their memoirs in their 20s. Seriously? But you know why? Here's the thing. I do not like the idea of it being a memoir. Like, I really hesitate to call it a memoir. Okay. Um, because I felt that way even at 50. I'd probably feel that way at 100. It's like, what a, What in my life is so important that I have <laughs> a story to tell? I mean, I'm not Queen Elizabeth. I'm not, you know. Um, you know, even, yeah, I think even people who are social pop stars and, and actors and actresses, it's like, it's it's but this was a, I had a catalyst you know I had a story to tell and I was actually writing a novel it just happened to become braided into a memoir because it was something that I was living through but it's only one aspect of my life it's certainly not about my life um, as a whole I'm not just like sorry oh I, you know at, at at seven years old I sat down at my baby grand piano and started writing ballads and you know you know and then I went through my studies and I had it's not just about it's not really about my life it's they're all stories they're basically essays um that complete a full story that I think everybody can relate to because this the, the book is really about just all the questions you ask you seem to ask the small questions um like what is life Wow, you know, what's this mystery and why do we give ourselves such hard times and why do we have so much regret and fear of the future and why can't we live in the present? And, you know, I just happen to have something that was put right in front of me that was so ironic and so interesting and so life-changing um, that it just provided material. So, yeah, the book isn't about my life per se. It's just about um, all the incidences incidents that mm -hmm. happened to me when I got a cancer diagnosis and how it like I think it's a collective I think people who don't have cancer um, are really relating to it because we all have crazy lives we all have crazy minds and we're all trying to make sense of it and it turns out there's a lot of humor in doing so and I have to tell you that in the month of January 2020 we started out the year with the entire month focusing on the authors of a book entitled Chaos to Clarity. Now what was so significant about that in addition to it's really fitting in really well with 2020 the year of perfect vision was that most of the authors that was their experience cancer. And the one thing that I, I haven't been able to yet uh, wrap my brain around, shall we say, is that fact that cancer or, or that which we call cancer, okay, yeah. is so pervasive in our society today here in the 21st century, especially here. Here we are going into the third decade. I realize uh, some of you folks are going to have trouble with this because it's the 20s, but it is the third decade of the 21st century. Uh, do the math. Uh, we're still dealing with this, and it's been around for I don't know how many centuries, but we didn't call it that. That's one of the questions I've asked some oncologists over the years is, 
have we had cancer with us, but we called it something else? And why did we change the name of that particular disease when they came up? And how did they come up with the word cancer, the big C and all of that stuff? Well, cancer, you know, you know, I had um, been struggling with a lot of depression and anxiety prior to my cancer diagnosis. And I'll never forget my mother saying to me one day, I was looping and I was just going over this regret, an obsession of a regret of something I'd done in my life that I just felt really changed the course of it. And I was, I was obsessed. Um, and I'm pretty sane, but I just could not get out of it. I could not get out of it. And she said to me one day, uh, you know, you might as well have cancer. And I thought, oh, my, my mom is the most gentle woman, the most optimistic person. She is, uh, she's just, you know, she's an incredible human being. So mm-hmm. for her to say that, and it, it was just like, wow, yeah. And so let's think about cancer. What is cancer? Can we, can it be stress related? Can it be, uh, can, can I, could I possibly have targeted an organ with my own anxiety and depression and it created a cancer I mean, it is a big word, and it's a scary word, and I hate to sound like, and all the other guests like sound like who they're coming, who's coming on, and, and and sounding like you know, we promote cancer so that you can go find clarity. You know, everybody go out and get cancer. That's where you're going to get clarity. That's not the case. It's it's just super unfortunate that we we that living closest to our truth comes sometimes in the form of a diagnosis that's life threatening. Mm. Well, that's rather interesting because for the longest time in my life, I didn't know anybody who had cancer. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until actually the first experience, if you will, of knowing someone was my father's brother. And this was after I had met my present wife. And we were living in Phoenix, and we had just gone through uh, the um, training for uh, being Reiki masters. So we asked my parents for a photograph, and they gave it to us, and we did what they call an absentee healing. And uh, the next time we talked with my folks, they shared with us the story of uh, my father's brother, my uncle, uh, right before his passing. And it was rather remarkable. And, um, And then... In 2001, July, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And she went through the surgery in August, August the 10th, and then went through chemo for five, five or six months. Uh, and so and now here I am. First, I know my uncle who had cancer and died of it. And now I'm a caregiver to someone who is uh, suffering through this, this uh, condition, this disease. And you start to ask yourself, why is there so much? And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not speaking from the standpoint of the physical material world. And so I'm curious from your perspective, uh, from more of a spiritual, metaphysical, esoteric perspective, mm-hmm. from your perspective, why do you think there is so much of it going on today and that you yourself became, can I say, a member of that club? Yeah. Well, nobody in my family, there's absolutely zero history of cancer in my family. Mental illness, sure. When I told them I had cancer, they thought I said, you know, that there's life on another, on Saturn, Mm -hmm. that close. Which there is, of course, but that's another story. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, it, it was shocking. So it made me, it made me go to the place of thinking about why is it possible, uh, that, I developed cancer in an area that was psychologically significant. 
to me, um, a targeted organ, and that the disease was influenced by um, my neuroses. Now, on the other hand, I could speak a lot to the cancer centers and the money that's poured into cancer. And then if we cured cancer, millions of dollars in the pharmaceutical industry would be lost. So I think there's a certain aspect of continuing um, to feed these cancer centers with more cancer patients. I mean, in 2017, I entered Sloan Kettering at um, in Westchester, and it was fairly maneuverable. I could get my blood drawn without waiting. I could get into the infusion room without waiting. Now it's packed, and this is just two years later. And the room and the place itself looks like a you know five star hotel. I mean, it's a nice facility, but it's just interesting. I think there's so much money in the business of cancer that I'm not saying that doctors don't want to cure it. But I think there's just not a lot of looking alternatively, and there's not a lot of looking like about what you're asking about, like where is it coming from? Yeah. Are there are there other things besides just like toxic environmental stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's fascinating. I think the whole, um, I don't know. I, I, I to answer your question, I think it, it's definitely multifaceted. But I, I think you're you're looking in the right direction. You're asking really interesting questions. Well, and, and the, the other aspect of it, too, that you sort of touched upon is, is a very unfortunate attribute of pretty much any disease. As we, 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 we have talked many times on this program over the last 13 years, um, as well as other interviews I've done over the last 40, that there, there are no accidents and that we choose to have the conditions under which we li- in which we live, whether we're conscious of them or not is a whole nother story. But the reality is that the choices that we have made have brought us to where we are. Now, that may be because we chose to live in a particular place that might have been contaminated, but we didn't know it. At least we didn't know it on the conscious level. Uh, or maybe we had an accident that that caused an injury that then developed. I mean, my wife even started running through her mind about could this have happened when I was married to my first husband and we were in Germany and I had this fall down these stairs and so on and so on and so on. And it's just now manifesting now. Uh, and the list goes on. Mm-hmm. But I, I love to ask this question of, of you and your condition, your uh, diagnosis and treatment and so forth. What was the biggest lesson that you learned through this process about yourself? Oh, how many personalities I have? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Sybil. That's the kind one, the gentle one, the one that had the most um, to give and creativity and, and wanted to live in the moment was just absent. Um, and that um, that I wasn't paying attention. Or even if I was paying attention, I just, um, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. I was searching for clarity for so long. It was just so ironic to me that it that came in this horrible, horrible form. And it's not fair. Well, let me ask you a que- another question in that regard. I have to say that I accepted it. Yeah, and I think- go ahead. I was going to say, if that's the case, uh, there are those who actually have talked about uh, there, uh, I've even one person who even said that my getting cancer was actually a blessing, you know, in terms of instead of looking at it as a negative, uh, they said, hey, you know, because it showed me 
what I was made of. It showed me uh, who I really am. It also helped to reinforce my um, uh, re- the reality of who and what I really am. And it is not, I am not a mortal body. I am immortal. That essence that dwells within each one of us that animates the body is immortal. It lives on. We don't fully understand it consciously in this world, but that's what a lot of the ancient wisdom teachings talk about. Have you had, were you presented with, did you ever find information along these lines that, that, that helped you through that process? Tell us about where you, where your mind and your heart were uh, during this process. Well, you know, like I said, I had been experiencing an incredible amount of anxiety and I could not get out of my way. I just couldn't. And um, when I found out I had cancer, it was almost like I put my head in my hands and I'm like, oh, my God, it makes sense. It almost made sense. It was like, you know, a greater being. I'm not saying God. There's no, you know, I'm not religious. But something, there was an energy force that said, look, you're not going to put it down. We're going to give you something to put it down. You're going to, there's no more looking into the past. There's no more looking into the future. All you can do is be right here now. And some, I think a lot of people do immediately go and and feel angry and fear. And they have other uh, experiences when they first learn to me. Um, it was just like a holiday from expectations. I was so into like, did I achieve enough? Do I have enough children? Do I have enough success? Do I have enough money? You know, I, I thought that I had all these choices and every step of the way I was thinking with my negative brain, you know, I, I was, I was had a critical, um, uh, tone with myself. And when I realized that, you know, there really is no such thing as the future and perhaps all the things that I wanted to do in the past now that I found out I'm dying maybe they wouldn't have been such good choices I do have to say that I looked up and the clouds that the sky looked blue the grass looked green uh I started to like I ate a glazed donut which I probably hadn't done in 20 years um you know I was like whoa wait a minute and my anxiety disappeared I mean it was crazy and I'm not saying that everybody should I hope everybody doesn't need to have cancer to live closer to their truth. Mm. But but it it was an awakening, and I was at least able to let go of something. So if I said, like your other um, um, person on your show, mm-hmm. it, I, I was grateful for it. In that way, it was. I was grateful because it it was a substitute for the anxiety, and mm. I wasn't and and it wasn't so. I wasn't so sick. I think if you're feeling ill and you're going through all these treatments, which I was. And you really can't get out of bed. It's a different story. But I did kind of present healthy. I mean, I lost my hair. I went through all the things people go through. But I did have a certain amount of strength. And I was working on something. I was working on a creative project. And the most, the, the, the craziest thing is everything became funny, where I never found any humor in depression. And I was writing and I was really struggling to write. I was looking for the material. I was working overtime. And, and when the cancer came, it was like, I was free and that kinder, gentler person came in and, and everything just started to flow and things flowed in a funny way. I mean, very serious, but funny. Like every sentence in the book, I certain people say, I laughed and cried in the same sentence, <laughs> um, which is great. Yeah. But um, I think it, it, it's got to be everyone's journey and is different, but it is amazing how many people you, you do hear say, wow, I thank cancer for certain aspects. And who knows? Maybe that analysis, that analysis uh, of of disease, uh, is probably it is a good one. In that, 
you don't have to do this, but maybe it was the only way that the universe uh, could wake you up and make you realize that not only is your life worth living, but that you have yet to live out your life's purpose. Have you discovered that for yourself in this in this process? Or did you already know prior to this, because you sound like when you were in college, you you were intrigued by filmmaking and so forth. Uh, but was that was that the place in college or was it really cemented uh, when you uh, received that diagnosis? No, I mean, I think I, I think what would be really nice is if I didn't have those expectations because it was never enough anyway. You know, mm-hmm. I was editing television commercials. I wasn't editing uh, Academy Award motion pictures. I, I were, you know, I made a documentary, but it wasn't enough. And I think actually, you know, what I was looking for, what I was hoping for was to be able to go out into my garden and weed, pull up the weeds and not think that I'm wasting my time and that there was something more important in the world for me to be doing besides sitting next to my husband who's, a, or, you know, he's in the, somewhere else in the garden weeding um, and think like, oh my God, I should be doing something else. I should be, because that's not the way you create. You know what? I was so much happier letting go of expectations and, and being like, okay, I can do this. I can take a walk with my dog. I could be here right now speaking to you. You know, I could be sitting here with my son making chocolate chip cookies. I don't have to be thinking about that next book I'm going to write. And, um, that was the freedom I was looking for. I think there's other ways to, to access it. I wanted to go to India. Turns out India came to me. Mm. <laughs> How's how now tell us about that. How did India come to you? Well, I, I tease. I don't think I'm done with my spiritual growth. <laughs> and the longer I live, you know, it's funny. It's like, oh, my God, I see it's coming back. You know, that worry and, and, and the uh, critical voice. Um, and it scares me. I'm not going to lie because I've been there. But I've also been there. I've also seen that it dissipated for a little bit. So the, the, the quest is how can I do that without a cancer diagnosis? How can I live without illness in a, in a way that's really healthy and, um, loving and caring and gentle and, you know, um, enjoyment. Yeah. It's, um, you know, some people, um, when that diagnosis comes, it's just, it is a blow. Like they, they will say, Oh, I was felt like I got hit by a truck or this or that or the other. And, you know, and I'm sitting here and I've been very fortunate that I have, had a fairly healthy life, at least the first 60 years. I have another 40 to go. I have to outlive my great-grandmother, who lived to be 100. Uh, And uh, when she was 95, I was telling the family that. And she lived to be 100. And I kept saying that over and over again, saying, she's making it really hard. But it's not that I wanted her to die. It's just... (laughs) She was. She was. She was indeed. She wasn't debilitated or laid yeah. up in bed for an extended period of time. I think it was fairly quick. And um, and of course, she'd been living without her husband for I'm not sure how many years, maybe 10, 15 years, which, you know, is, is qu- quite extraordinary. Uh, usually, if uh, the couple is really connected, one follows right after the other. My my ex-wife's parents were like that. My father, my ex-father-in-law, he passed away from an aneurysm, and my ex-mother-in-law passed away four months later yeah, of a broken me. heart. And so that happens. Uh, and so there, but there are a lot of different kinds of conditions that we are faced with throughout our lives. And is it your belief that it is literally how we face them, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, Ooh. it's how we face them. Not so much 
um, uh, even though in my book choices, uh, my the opening sentence was a literal question to my my second wife here um, back in 2001. When I asked her, do you want to live or do you want to die? I, I may not like the choice you make, but right. I will support you in it. Wow. Um, and, of course, she told me later that she had already made that decision. Mm. And uh, and so I'm just wondering, um, is it how you face it regardless of how it goes? Even if after that diagnosis it just raged through your body and that was going to be the end? Well, you know, and that did not happen to you. It's interesting. I had no. a chapter in my book called uh, Should I Fight? Which you, I don't know if you did read, but you should because that is exactly the situation between my husband and I after we went to see an oncologist mm -hmm. in uh, Washington, D.C., where I got my originally got treatment. So my family was there, three sisters and, and my mom and my dad. And mm -hmm. they, they, they brought me to, to Maryland so they could care for me while my husband and my son were here in New York. And, you know, after that first oncologist appointment, he asked me, What do you want to do? And, um, you know, he really. It, it, it was soon to tell, but it's an interesting chapter because my sisters and my mom said, what are you kidding me? She doesn't have a, she, those aren't choices she should be making right now. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think the relationship between husband and wife when you're going through uh, cancer and, and especially the husband being the caregiver, it's really fascinating and it's, 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 it's complex and it's complicated. And um, so there is a chapter in the book that that's interesting. I suggest, I would like you to read. Um, you might really relate to that. But anyway, um, you asked me about, um, facing these situations yeah. and is, is it how you face them no matter how things go that is going right. to be the most important both to you as well as to your spouse or your I family? I was so when I first diagnosed and somebody gave me a book I had a couple people wanted to give me books that had like <laughs> uh, positivity cures cancer you know um, and I thought oh really that's such a that, so give me a little pressure, you know? So what are you saying? If I'm depressed or if I'm not like really smiling every day and thinking I can beat this, I'm not going to, it, it relies on my positivity that I'm going to beat this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I really just thought, you know, people ask me, what can I do? Which, how should I talk to people who I just found out they have cancer? I'm like, you know, I don't, <laughs> that's not the thing. Um, because I don't think positivity can cure stage four cancer. However, <laughs> mm -hmm. here I am two years later telling you, that I had very aggressive stage of disease, and it it went away to the point where um, it was really just in the lymph nodes and minuscule and not a lot of cancer. And all through that time, I was not denying myself anything. I wasn't doing any crazy juicing or um, coffee enemas. I wasn't doing anything that was going to alter my make me live in denial. Mm -hmm. Except I felt like I already lived a really healthy life. I mean, if, no matter. I might be if I'm going to live another year. What I'm going to deny myself and just hope that like juicing is going to yeah cure? No, thank you. So you know what? I did live really positively. I was able to write this book. I was able to find a lot of humor and laugh and uh, take some trips. And here I am telling you, like you know, actually I'm beating the odds, and and it's kind of crazy. So look, if I think I gave myself cancer. Possibly positivity and, 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 and reversing my anxiety and living in the moment? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, I kind of went through something similar, but it was uh, having to do with my vision. Back when I was working for a Christian radio station, I had some people come up to me, uh, and they, they were hosting a, a live call-in prayer program. 
And after the program was over, they had noticed that I was using a magnifying glass. I was legally blind until I was 38. And, um, I, you know, I was looking closely at things of this nature. And they came in and they said, we would like to uh, pray for the, the healing of your eyes. And at that time, because this is where I was, I said no. I said, I appreciate what you want to do. And, of course, I, I can't stop them from praying for me. Right. But I said, but my purpose here on this earth is not to be healed. My purpose here, which I knew then, was to do the work that I was doing for you and all of the other programmers so that your message gets out. Whether I agree or disagree with it is irrelevant. If your message gets out and people like it, great. If they don't like it, great. It, it They get to decide. But I want to make sure that it can be heard clearly and distinctly and, and so that there's no there are no obstacles. And that's the same thing with this program. Um, I want people to hear what you have to say. It's not for me to say, well, no, you know, Beth, I think you're wrong. I, you know, um, uh, uh, negativity actually helps to cure cancer uh, and so on and so on and so forth. No, 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 no. It's about people's messages. And I love uh, James Redfield in his Celestine Prophecy who talks about how we have messages one for the other and that they're vital and that we need to share them because it's only through that sharing that we begin to be able to put that puzzle of our lives sort of together a little bit more and a little bit more. And I want to get into that when we yeah. come back from our break, because I want to talk about the title of the book. Why didn't I notice her before? And your self-reflection as we continue here on tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world. I'm Richard Dugan. Don't go anywhere. Tell me your story. Oh, I'm so demanding, telling you not to go anywhere. Stay right where you are, because Beth Kramer is going to continue to talk to us about her memoir, her life, the the struggle, the challenge, uh, the great experiences that she had uh, facing down, so to speak, uh, or facing up to uh, the diagnosis of cancer or uh, the big C. Why didn't I notice her before? And I thank you for staying with us. And let's talk a little bit about that title, because what that is saying to me is there was that moment of and maybe more than just a one of self-reflection self-awareness uh, uh, maybe even of the critical eye if not also of the compassionate non-judgmental eye uh, that you began to see when you looked in the mirror or what or you went within and so forth can you share with us a little bit more about that absolutely um so it's actually a sentence in one of my chapters, um, and it really did sum up the book. You know, I was living in a place of uncertainty, um, and I was really, you know, absence of self-kindness. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. cancer silenced the inner critic um, and sort of reduced all this clutter, you know, that I just had in my mind, and I was beating myself up and wasn't, like I said, living in the moment. And, you know, when it dissipated and I was able to not be so self-centered – um, I kind of saw just the essence of myself and like, no, I was an idealistic girl. I, you know, I did have courage and determination and potential and I sort of had given up on her and that wasn't very fair. Right. So, um, I was actually looking at a photograph of myself, um, with long hair. It was I like, sitting on the couch 
um, like three months after cancer, having chemotherapy, I was rolled up in a ball, you know, swaddled in an Afghan, bald with a little, you know, beanie. And I saw this picture of myself. And I was like, why didn't I notice her before? You know, I didn't even know at that moment when I radiated this love for my son, when the picture was taken, um, I, I didn't see the essence of her. I was so caught up. I was struggling so much. Um, and here I am from the other side in a place of, of illness. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so, and that's so, you know, it's metaphorical. It's also, it was also very literal at the time, but metaphorically, yeah, why didn't I notice this person that, that had a lot of lack going for her without this, this, the critic. Yeah. Now, I, I, I ask this in reference to your husband, and you, you, you make a very good point, especially in regards to the chapter where you talk about uh, the effects on family, friends, spouse, because uh, I did not know what the hell a caregiver was at that time. I had no training. I had no awareness. I had no knowledge. All I knew was she was hurting, and I tried to do everything I could to make her feel better, but I also knew that there really wasn't anything that I could do to make her feel better and that I had to let her go through it if that's what she chose to do. And again, as I said, she did. But one of the things that I did and continue to do to this day is um, joined with her in solidarity and I, I wish I could remember the date, but it had to have been in late August or early September when she told me before she went in for her first chemotherapy treatment that they told her that she was going to lose her hair. And I said, well, then let's go to the hair salon and we'll shave our heads together. Now, I had a ponytail at the time, long hair. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm willing, I'm willing to do that. And uh, so she said, "Okay." And this was several days prior. So we got to the evening when we were going to the salon near the house. And she told me, I got a call from the oncologist who said they're not going to be using the real heavy stuff. They're going to be using a lighter form of chemo. And so my hair is only going to lightly fall out. And so I'm not going to shave my head. Well, I was already primed and ready to go. I wanted to do this. I really did. And I did. And I shave my head to this day, uh, both in solidarity, but also because I like it. Uh-huh. And, and I still have the ponytail. They tied it off real well, cut it off, and I keep it in a box. And uh, one day I'll glue it on the back of my you, head. And, uh, I you, you can make a wig with that. There People you do. go. Yeah. Take their long hair and then they make a wig with it. Yeah. It's going to be a very small wig. I can tell you that right now. Like, you know, you attach it to a cap. Like there you ball. go. <laughs> But I'm curious as to what form of, shall we, we'll call it solidarity, was your uh, husband able to muster uh, in terms of supporting you? Um, I just want to follow up what you just said. My son, actually, he was 12 at the time. He came with me when I got my head shaved, and it was such a great experience. He was so supportive, and I think it, um, you know, it demystified the whole thing, and he, it was great. So, I mean, you know, losing your hair is a very big thing. We, mm-hmm. we, we can't take that lightly, but right. that's good for you. That's really cool that you did that. Um, my husband's, you know, he, he, his attitude is very funny. He never makes you feel like I have cancer. He doesn't spend too much time paying attention to that. So we'll make jokes. I'll, I'll say like, you know, you use that barbecue sauce on that chicken. Do you think, you know, maybe you don't have to use that. It's got a lot of preservatives. And then be like, what, you think you're going to die? 
you know, or what are you afraid of dying? Or, you know, you think it's going to kill you? Or I'll say, you know, I really, uh, maybe I should start learning to like put oil in my car. It's time for me to grow up. And he goes like, what's, why, why bother? Yeah. <laughs> so, not in a harsh way, but to me, the, the things like that just make me laugh. Um, you know, when I lost my hair, he, he said he woke up, he thought he was sleeping next to uh, his father-in-law. Oh. That, that was kind of painful, it was kind of hurtful, but it was kind of funny. I'm like, oh my God, I look like an 80-year-old <laughs> man from Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> but, but, he, but the truth is, when I was going through the majority of my... Um, the beginning of my illness. I do have three sisters and a mother. If you've ever seen Little Women, you pretty much get a vision of my family. Yeah. Um, extremely protective. Uh, I'm the youngest of, of four girls, and um, they 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 wanted me to come to Maryland, where they all live, so they could take care of me. And there's nothing like the bonds of sisterhood um, when they're like my family. And I could I wanted to leave my I didn't want my husband. And my son to see me not feeling well every day. Um, and I wasn't exactly very vulnerable with my husband. You know, the whole time at the beginning, I didn't ask him to come with me to chemotherapy uh, or stick around for the surgery. I mean, these were my choices, too. Uh, I wanted him to be there for my son. And when I came home, I didn't want to have to think or be waited on. I didn't want to, you know, if I, if I filled the dishwasher and it, it kind of threw off of his belly, you know, he, he likes things in a certain way. And I, if I threw, if I didn't put the, the bowls in, in the right way, he'd still get a little annoyed. I thought that was cool. I'm like, all right, good. We're just living. Um, I feel so bad. I feel like I'm painting him out to be a bad guy. He's not, he's really fun and been so, so great with me. Um, we have a great relationship, but I did have family. I did have immediate family. And so they, they saw a lot of that. Now it's different. Now we're going through it again. And my husband, I am being in a vulnerable place and he is coming with me for infusions and so forth. Um, so I, I think solidarity is good, but sometimes it's nice to just have a vacation from being waited on. Yeah. Yeah. I know my father who is uh, 89 this year, uh, has a little difficulty with his equilibrium, uh, uses a cane and when we were there for Christmas 2019, uh, he went to uh, uh, get up out of the chair and I went over to help him up. And he said, no, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm fine. I'll, I'll, I can do this. And I noticed that he just he wants to maintain his independence. So, yes, I can certainly relate to that. And I feel the same way when there was a period of time here uh, in the last 10 years where I would have uh, swollen ankles or, or a, a, a toe because I was suffering from gout or or my elbows were. Matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why I ended up growing the beard was because I couldn't bend my right elbow because it was so swollen. And that went on for about a week to 10 days and the hair started growing in. I thought, you know, I haven't had a. I haven't had a beard since my 20s. I wonder what it looks like now and if there's any gray in it. Oh, yeah, there is. Yeah. Uh, you know, I also couldn't shave my head either. And so it started to grow in. And as soon as I was able to bend my elbow, I shaved my head. It did not look like I wanted it to. Yeah. Uh, so I can certainly understand that sense and need of independence. But you just mentioned something. Did you say that you are uh, it has it has returned? You're no longer yes. in remission? Well, you know, it's, it's, I never went into remission. I was okay. platinum, they call platinum resistant. So after I had the first seven rounds of chemotherapy, I had four rounds and I had surgery, then I had three more. Um, and it looked like things were getting better. And then right before the six month mark, um, it started to grow back. And they call that platinum resistant. 
mm. to the type of, I have ovarian cancer. So to the type right. of cancer that I had, it was growing back, which meant I wasn't going to go into remission. So to, in order to manage the cancer, I had to go into a different type of therapy. And so in order to manage it, in order to keep it from not growing, which is the, um, our focus, um, I do have to go back for infusions every once in a while. I've just had six months off and, um, I just had to go back last week, which is not pleasant. Mm. Um, but, uh, I let my husband come with me. This is, so this is a whole new era. This is a whole new journey. Now I'm going to be vulnerable. He said, I want to come. And instead of saying, no, you don't have to. And, um, you know, I said, okay, this is, a, this is going to be a new chapter. This is, it, it's still a lesson, right? This is, I'm still here. I'm learning. And, um, yeah, yeah, but did, so I do. Did have you gone through those? Uh, I don't know if there are seven stages, if you will, and uh, and the one and most important one that I think of too is, is the bargaining with God. No, no. <laughs> I just you know I love that you, you asked that question because you know I was thinking about the seven stages. And I think I think they probably got it all mixed up. Like my stages aren't going in any particular order. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, no. I mean, m- my first stage was humor. Everything is funny. So, you know, I got to look up the exact seven stages, but I know mine are not in that order. So, mm. um, I'm, and I'm, and you know, I'm not there yet. So people are like, well, what do you, how are you, how are you dealing with dying? Are you, I'm, I'm not in that place yet, but, um, I'd but, be interested. <laughs> but are you, but are you really, uh, are you really dying? I mean, well granted we we get born into this earth into this world yes and and from the moment we are born (laughs) we're destined to die as my as my father would always say and i quote him all the time uh, eat drink and be merry in moderation because nobody gets out of this world alive (laughs) thank god (laughs) i mean i you know (laughs) i don't want to scare you it's some of the things that i think but i do um no i'm living with cancer and i and i said that to an oncologist once he said oh god i'm dying no you're not you're living with cancer and that is the truth because i don't know what i don't understand this whole like when do you call yourself a cancer survivor like there's got to be are you i I don't like that term i'm confused like there's got to be another term so i guess it's just living with cancer Cause I'm not a cancer survivor. I'm still living with cancer and people. And even if I went into remission, you know, they the, the odds are five years, um, for ovarian cancer or some, then people say, Oh, but you know, I had a friend who lives 15. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, but the cancer, does it define you? No. Okay. God, no. Ugh. I, yeah, it doesn't. Uh, uh, yeah, you're not a woman with cancer. You're not uh, Beth Kramer, author with cancer. You're just Beth Kramer, and she just happens to have cancer, and that's well, what she. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I was concerned because the book itself, though it's about, it does have elements of cancer. The last thing I wanted to do was publicize it as a cancer book, mm-hmm. um, because it's not. I swear to God. And most people <laughs> who have cancer actually don't even want to read it. If, if somebody said to me, "Here's a book," you know, it's written by a woman who had cancer, I'd be like. Uh, you know, thanks. I'm living my own journey. You know, I, I hate the word journey too. Sorry, but <laughs> I'm my own, I have cancer. What I want to read about somebody else's, but it's not like that at all. In fact, like, you know, the, like I said before, the book is super authentic. It's, it's so real. It's just, um, I, I just, I didn't hold anything back and I'm a pretty private person. I, I just told it as it was. And I think, like I said, anybody, um, men, have, have have absolutely men feel the same as women, right? We all have the same capacity for 
empathy and humor and illness and pain. So, yeah, I try not to make it. It's not a cancer book. It just happens to be the catalyst. How, how honest were you with your son? I, you did say you took him to the salon when you had your head shaved. But when you received the diagnosis, how long did it take before you told him? And how, what was the difficulty level on that? Oh, well, very difficult. Um, in fact, my husband and I, like I said, we're private. We didn't want people to know. Um, I chose not to. So I didn't tell people for like months, actually. Um, uh, people in our general vicinity, you know, some of our yeah. close friends found out quickly. My family, as soon as we found out, I was almost overnight that they brought me to see a doctor in Maryland. My biggest... Uh, I, I'm sorry to say that I did, was not there to tell my son that I had cancer. Uh, my husband actually told him. Um, and I would have liked to have. He's we're very close. We're, we're very bonded, my son and I. He's my single child. Um, and he means everything to me. This book is sort of a love letter to him. I'm, we talk a lot about a relationship in the book, about parenting and, and the funny things that, you know, that come along with it. Um, but so he was very concerned and all, and, and there's a lot of things in the book that I didn't want to tell my son until he was at least 20, if ever, mm -hmm. um, because there's a lot of secrets. There's a lot of things that might hurt him, um, about my own depression, things I've done in my life that I wasn't maybe proud of. And I, and I worried, I, I was very concerned. I was apprehensive about, um, you know, publishing this book because he was going to read it and he's a reluctant reader. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I knew he was going to read this book. So, um, I sit him down before the book comes out and I have to reveal some of these things because I think he's going to read it. <clears throat> so I tell him about some of the things in the book, some of the things I regret, some of the things that might've potentially changed his life. Um, and I want him to hear it from me before he read the book. Book comes out. He reads through the table of contents. He goes to the chapter that's entitled sex. He goes right to that chapter. He reads the chapter. He goes, oh, okay. <laughs> so that happened. Um, and it, it's not like an X-rated, like, you know, right. uh, sex chapter. But, you know, it's very emotional and, and, mm -hmm. and, and it's thoughtful and things about sex. And he, and he never picked up the book again. So here I'm thinking, oh, my God, I told him all this stuff. And we cried about it. And we hugged. And he said how much he loves me. And he's so happy. He's my only child. And he gets so much tension from me and my husband. But he never read the book. And I was so worried about how I was going to tell him about all these things in the book. Um, so um, I did try to, as far as, like, you know, the hair, he didn't have to see too much. Like I said, I never presented that unhealthy. Um, but he did see me lose my hair, and he kept saying, Mom, you don't have to wear those wigs. Don't wear those wigs. They're clearly uncomfortable. You don't like them, and you look beautiful. Um, you know, and this is why he was 12 years old, 12, 13. Yeah. Um, but there are lots of stories about how when he discovered uh, marijuana in my closet, because, you know, people had been, like, gifting me with all this marijuana, because <laughs> you know, apparently, you know, marijuana kills cancer, um, or at least makes it easier to live with. And uh, so there's lots of funny things that, you know, he came into, uh, <laughs> like, not, or I'd drink a glass of wine and be like, Mom, you can't be doing that. You know, that's not good for you. Or you shouldn't be eating that sugar. Um, yeah. But, yeah, um, he, he, he's he's very brave, and uh, I'm doing well. So, you know. Well, I, I tell you, it's – it's. Uh, Every person's, uh, uh, as you say, uh, uh, process and path are a little different, uh, and yet, you know, every one of us is, you know, we have, uh, we have, when we come into this world, we have a, uh, 
a round-trip ticket, and the front end of it, the arrival, has already been punched. That's your birthday. That's when you come into this world. Mm. Now, the departure time and date, they're there, too. We just can't see it. Do but, you think so? But everybody's got one, okay? Do you think so? You think like you, Do you think it was my destiny to die, like, young? No, uh, because here's, here's what's so fascinating about all of this. Uh, and if I'm remembering correctly... Uh, I believe it was Norman Vincent Peale who had been given a diagnosis of a terminal condition. And they gave him, I don't know if it was two weeks or two months. And he said, no. And he started watching like the Three Stooges and all kinds of comedy and stuff like that. And he lived uh, a much longer life, way beyond the the period that the doctors had told him, you know, yeah. like like they know, you know, kind of thing. Um, uh, you know, and and. At the same time, I don't know. I'm curious as to whether or not you are ready to go. No, um, I'm not yet. Uh, there were moments before the cancer where I wasn't living fully, and I would always live for love. If I had to give you 10 reasons to live, again, a chapter in the book. I could write my son Noah 10 times, and that would be enough. Mm -hmm. um, but as I went along, and as I started to enjoy the simple pleasures in life, I could put glazed donut as number five, eat a glazed donut. You know, um, it, I don't know. Maybe cancer was just my wake-up call. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe it was, that was just the threat. I mean, I think what a brilliant idea as a writer. I was like, that. I, I wouldn't have come up with that one. You know, <laughs> that was just really yeah. good. Yeah. Well, I have to say that that within uh, uh, the, uh, in particularly, <clears throat> the uh, um, we'll call it the Christian philosophy, and that's why I was born and raised Catholic. And of course, as I say, I worked for fifteen years for this Christian radio station, and that's sort of how they put it. You know, it's you either believe in God and the Savior, or you go to hell. And uh, I, I, I thought about that for a very long time while working at that station. And the more I thought about it, the more I researched it, the more I talked to uh, others about it, uh, the more I began to realize that either A, God is an extortionist <laughs> or the story isn't true. It can only be one of two, because if we have free will to choose uh, then how how is that even possible? Of course, then the other aspect for me too is uh, facing Judgment Day. Um, I have two two ways of going at it. Number one is, look, God, you know, you gave me this life. I did the very best that I could, but in the final analysis, um, you're going to do with me what you're going to do with me. I have I can't. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't fight against you. But uh, the second part is that, uh, you know, you're omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And uh, so basically my life is on you because you created me. So it's I, I take no responsibility for my life if that's the way this is going down. Uh, but I personally believe that this life has meaning. This is not an accident, that we all have a purpose. And... Um, I don't know if there's a, a judgment day. All I know is that judgment day for us is each day in terms of, did I do better today than I did yesterday? And there's still daylight, so is there something I can do to be better today than yesterday? And then tomorrow you do the same thing, and you just try to get better and better. And it sounds to me like 
even through what you have been facing and are, are currently facing, uh, you're doing that, especially considering what you've shared about the relationship with your husband as well as with your son. How, how old is your son now? Fifteen. Fifteen. And he was how old when you were first? He was 13. Because, well, 13. yeah, just turned 13. Just thir- Okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, preteen, teenager. Uh, you know, and, and um, you know, I grew, you know, I had four sisters and a brother, two older sisters, a younger brother and two younger sisters. And we were faced with asthma and obviously dental issues and vision issues and those kinds of things as we were growing up. Uh, never, never had anything of this nature pop up into our family, um, yeah. you know. And of course, now we're all in our fifties, and I hate to say my my sisters, well, my both my sisters are in their sixties, and I'm headed there too next. Yeah. <laughs> and my brother and two younger sisters are in their fifties. It's just weird to say, because I remember when we were kids running around in the yard. But um, you know, we're we're all doing well. I'm curious as to uh, uh, are your are your parents uh, still alive? They are. And how yeah. are they doing? My, you know, my mom is so strong, and she she will absolutely live forever. Um, and she's younger than all of us. She's always has been. Um, and my dad's doing okay right now. He's going through a little rough spot, um, you know, with health. Um, but they're they're doing well. And my mom always never, you know. She, I get it from her. It's like not such no such thing as a cold, you know. We we rarely we just we, we work through it. Um, it's quite the business ethic, you know. <laughs> um, you said something that I I don't know that reminded me of. Well, I I I lost something about you said about your family. Anyway, yeah, but they're they're doing very well, and my sisters are are very healthy yeah. as well. And and I've actually portrayed my family and my growing up and the holidays, um, not quite, I say, you know, we're, we weren't exactly the Norman Rockwell painting that you see of Thanksgiving dinner because we had our struggles and stress. I mean, my goodness, you've got eight people living in a maybe 16, 1700 square foot, three bedroom, one bath, one bath for eight people. You're telling other people's stories? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That's my story. I know. I'm saying. And, and it's, it's, it's amazing that um, we joke about it, that we all survived, you know, that we got out of that house alive uh, in that respect. But we did. And, you know, my parents, they uh, I remember uh, I've actually interviewed them for this program, which hasn't been heard by anyone other than relatives, because my mother has said, I'm not allowed to release it while they're alive. Uh, and it's not that they said anything, you know, terrible or anything. It's just that's my mother's wish, and I'm going to honor that. And I hope I won't be releasing that for a long time to come. Then my dad, 89, and mother, 86. But they're yeah, doing when well. You tell stories, it's hard. I mean, you you got to get your inspiration from somewhere. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I just want to say, because you, you know, you're talking about a lot of things that I'm so interested in, like judgment. And then you, we, we talked a lot about cancer. And it's interesting because all through my experience in writing this book, I never delved into the the actual medical side of what I was going through. So there's really no nothing like it's not about cancer. I say it again, only because I'm interested in all the stories that we have and and how, you know, trauma or um, illness just it, it sort of informs our choices and how we walk on this earth and and how we judge ourselves, not God judging us, but how we judge ourselves mm-hmm. and reading and, and paying attention to signs and 
And to me, they were everywhere because I happened to be given the material to walk in through a cancer center or places where I could see other people going through the same thing. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think that paying attention to the signs through, through life and also accepting that things happen for a reason can help a lot. And sometimes we may not know what the reason is. And we have to kind of say, and that's okay. I don't have to know why today um, because I'm dealing with it, if you will. You know, that seems to me to be a, an appropriate perspective. Is that, do you kind of feel that way or are you hell bent on finding out why? No, not anymore. I mean, I was trying to find out why for other things. And this was just too big of a thing for me to question. And it didn't matter anymore. I just wanted to find peace. And um, and learn from whatever was happening to me. Like, why did the clarity come? Yeah, I'm kind of curious. But at the same time, I know I was given a death sentence and that forced me to live in the moment because it didn't feel like it made sense to to be worrying about the future. Um, And there will be. Yeah. Today's the future. The next talking to you right now is I'm living the future, right? All right. I, I want to share with you a, a different perspective uh, than what you've just shared. You say you've been given a death sentence, but yet this death sentence has w- awakened you in a certain way. So maybe in one aspect, you've actually been given a life sentence. Yes, you're so right. And I'm so, you know what? I have to change my book. I have to change the dialogue. <laughs> I have to change the narrative because it might have started off like that, you know? Uh-huh. Or uh, uh, maybe that's what it appeared to be. But you're right. The narrative is changing. And you're right. I'm living with cancer. It's not a death sentence, a life sentence. I like that. I appreciate that. Yeah, because you're, you're you know, I mean, you're a beautiful, vibrant, enthusiastic, positive individual who... Uh, we've shared this hour on this program together and, you know, and it's like, nah, this woman, she can't have, can't, she's got too much energy. She's too, <laughs> too, um, uh, you may or may not remember uh, this program, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show, Lou Grant sister, <laughs> you got spunk. I hate spunk, but you do. You. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my son, he loves it. Actually. We watched a lot, a lot of that together, but you're fun to talk to. Well, thank you. I you are also fun to talk to, and I have to say that that um, for people to listen to this interview, and and for that matter, to pick up a copy of your book, which is entitled, folks, "Why Didn't I Notice Her Before?" It's a memoir about dying to live. Beth Kramer is my guest, and uh, by the way, I believe your website is bethkramer.com as far as uh, the work that you're doing, but you also have a link on your website to your film and commercial uh, accolades, if you will, correct? That's correct. Yeah. I was there looking at some of that stuff, and, and it's like this this is just really – this is very cool. Um, what you're doing with your life, you continue to do that. You're still, as you just said, you're still working on projects. And, and um, you know, I, I, and I asked you the question if you were ready to go, and you said no. I actually can say even though – there's so much. I want to live to 100. I want to outlive my great-grandmother, but it's like I've got another lifetime to go, and there's so much more I want to do, so many more people I want to talk with and ask questions of uh, and glean information from. For, for my, my puzzle must be huge because I've talked to so many people. Um, yeah. But you know what? If I walked out the door today and bam, I'm good with that, okay? I don't want it to happen. 
But that means you're living pure. Yeah. That means maybe you're living your truth. Yeah. And and uh, it's it's uh, it's so much fun to to have the opportunity to speak with folks. Now, before we wrap up the program, however, I want to touch upon this. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear, which is an old proverb attributed to Budo. One of my favorite people, not because I have read the works of, but the, I just know the story of, and I love the fact that when he, uh, Siddhartha, sat down below the on the Bodhi uh, under the Bodhi tree, exhausted from searching for enlightenment, it dawned on him, as uh, it was shared with me when I was looking for a girlfriend back in my twenties. If you stop looking you will find it. <laughs> and uh, it seems to me like uh, your experience has brought you that awareness of self, that uh, the answers that you need, as we've talked about regarding 2020, the year of perfect vision, is that the answers are within you, and all you have to do is sit quietly and let them come in. Very true. Yes. Thank you. Beth Kramer, before we let you go, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the program. And uh, should you find yourself out here on the Central Coast in the not-too-distant future for a little getaway, maybe even a celebration, uh, that it's gone, 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 uh, then we'd love to have you in studio to continue this conversation. It's just fascinating uh, because, uh, again, uh, again, it's not a book about cancer, folks. It's a, bo- about a book about a woman's determination to live the life that uh, she has the way she wants to. And that's what you're doing, isn't it? It is. Thank you so much. I'd love to come out there and speak with you live. That'd be yeah. great. Well, come yeah. on out. I have three yeah. final questions for you. Um, and you've probably answered them in some fashion throughout the interview, but I like to ask them pointedly. Before I do, though, I want to let our listeners know and remind them of the program at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on Sundays and Monday mornings at 1 a.m. Podcasting on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and so many others. And also, if you'd like to support the work that we are doing here, you like what we're doing, you like how we're trying to help make this a better place for all people and supporting one another in whatever way that we can, we could use your support financially. We do have a PayPal and Patreon account if you can do so. Uh, We greatly thank those who have supported and who will support. And if you can just support us energetically, hey, we will take that too. We are all connected and and supporting one another. So please uh, do what you can in any way, shape, or form. And uh, the final questions that I have for you, author of Why Didn't I Notice Her Before?, who is Beth Kramer? Oh, my God. That's the hardest question you could ask me. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's always the hardest. Um, you know, I'm a storyteller, and I use words and film to create emotionally driven stories. But also, I'm just I'm just a person trying to be gentle with herself and, um, and uh, to live in the moment. Talking to you right now, that's who I am. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? To reach as many people that I can that will find my work relevant to them so they can see themselves in it and I can be as authentic as I can and have people connect. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Oof. Um... To live without denial in moderation, but to live without denial and and really to just enjoy my family and laugh as much as I can. 
And Beth, seek. Yep. And seek. Beth Kramer. And- Dot com is the website. That's uh, B-E-T-H-C-R-A-M-E-R. BethKramer.com is the website where you can learn more about her as well as uh, uh, her book and the work that she's doing. Go to the uh, films page as well, the, the link there on her website. And also pick up a copy of Why Didn't I Notice Her Before. And we thank you for listening, too. Tell me your story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast podcast, Love to Lal.